You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. For the ministry of the Word, let's open our Bibles now, and we first read a passage from Isaiah and then from Galatians. Both passages are chosen in connection with the revelation of our sins and misery through the law of God. So Isaiah chapter 8, first of all, and we'll read the verses 11 through 22. The Lord spoke to me with His strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And He will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, He will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in Him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Let's turn ahead now to Galatians chapter 3. We'll read the verses 10 through 25. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, The Scripture does not say, and to seeds meaning many people, but and to your seed meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. 
The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in His grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What, then, was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You've come to Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read Lord's Day 2 together as it forms the topic for the sermon this afternoon. Question and answer 3, from where do you know your sins and misery? Answer, from the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Can you keep all this perfectly? Answer, no. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a very famous book written to help guide us through the Scriptures opens by stating nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And this book is John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin finds that when we think of who we are, so we got our minds down here, thinking about ourselves, he finds our minds are drawn up to God in whom we live and move and have our being. So there's this movement this way. We look at ourselves, we see our misery, and we're stung by it. We realize our ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, wickedness, and corruption. And we immediately have a sense of some other perfect knowledge, wisdom, power, goodness, and splendor So we are measuring ourselves against some standard. The very fact that we wonder about our troubles suggests that we have implanted in us the sense of what we should be, the sense of one even greater than we can be. So we look at ourselves and our minds are drawn up to God. And similarly, we never really know ourselves unless we first look up to God and get to know Him. So the knowledge of God in ourselves is mutually dependent. You need to know God to know yourself better, and knowing yourself better should lead your minds towards knowing God better. 
One of the ways that this mutually dependent knowledge grows is by knowing the law of God. God's law is called holy and righteous and good in Scripture. And yet this holy, righteous, and good law quite often has a rather negative function. For by it we come to know how great are our sins and misery. Now let's not let this scary thought make us run away from the law. For it reveals God's good nature and will. But one of its functions for sinners is extremely difficult. So let's hear God's word about this. Why should fallen creatures know God's law? Why should fallen creatures know God's law? First, because it reveals God's good nature and will. And secondly, because it reveals our evil nature and will. So fallen sinners should know God's law because it reveals God's good nature and will. We begin with a question. Did God have a law before the fall into sin? Were there things that God commanded and things that God forbade before the fall into sin? Well, this shouldn't be too hard for you to answer. God commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. Those are commands. To fill the earth and subdue it. He commanded us to work the garden. He also commanded us to rule over all the creatures as people made in His image. So there were lots of things that God commanded. He also rested on the seventh day and set that day aside from the other six, again, even before the fall into sin. He also brought the woman to the man and united them in marriage. Marriage was ordained before the fall as the structure within which we were to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. One man and one woman committed to each other in marriage. So clearly, God had a law before the fall into sin. He also forbade something, namely, that we should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're to be creatures in His image, walking in true righteousness and holiness, knowing Him rightly, and therefore being perfectly holy. Basically, the contents of the Ten Commandments were God's will from the beginning and were rightly known by Adam and Eve. They had to be published again because of our ignorance and our sin, but not because Adam and Eve had never heard such things. Well, this afternoon, we are especially concerned with why they're going to be republished. We're concerned with the function of God's law after the fall into sin. Before the fall, we not only knew it perfectly, but we also obeyed it perfectly. After the fall, we neither knew it perfectly nor obeyed it fully. But does this change the character of the law? Did our fall change God's nature or His will? Not in any way whatsoever. God claims for Himself constancy and faithfulness. Malachi 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, that is why you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. His unchanging nature and will underlie our stability. So although we're going to see that God's law reveals our evil nature and will, we first have to see how it reveals God's good nature and will as much after the fall into sin as before. When the Apostle Paul struggled with God's lawful demands in Romans 7, he asked, 
Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. He affirms that, he affirms after that, that the law is spiritual, which, just take the first part of the word spiritual, it means the law is spirit given, it's spirit filled, it's spirit willed. The law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Romans 7. God is the God of unchanging truth. He doesn't reveal one law at one time and then condone the opposite later on. There were some laws adjusted to the changing circumstances of the times for Old Testament Israel, laws that were designed to point to the need for and the benefits of the coming Messiah, Jesus. Laws that the Apostle Paul will also say uh, no longer are um, in force. But God's moral law has always been in place and does not change, and basically it is the Ten Commandments. God often presents His law as a reflection of Himself. For example, in Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45, and then repeated in 1 Peter 1, verse 6, God tells His people, Be all of you holy, for I am holy. Or because I am holy. So God is set apart from all sin. He is pure in every way. And then He presents Himself as our pattern and gives us the laws by which we will remain pure if we follow them. In Genesis 2, God basically says, I rested on the seventh day, now you rest too. Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus commands all Christians, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. He means that we act towards others without partiality or favoritism. That we even love our enemies by acting kindly toward them on a personal level. In Luke 6, verse 36, Jesus says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And in Ephesians 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. The idea of being called children is that children are to imitate their father. We are adopted and then also should become adapted to our new status by becoming imitators of God, our Father. John wrote, Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. So there is a strong sense in which we are to be like God. God's law also fits with the nature of His creation, as was said this morning. God did not arbitrarily pick a few laws just to exert His authority and then tell His human creatures to live that way. God would never have said murder is good or stealing is good or adultery is good. Never. God made laws which fit the nature of His creatures and when followed, His laws lead to human flourishing. You will do better by following God's laws. And this principle underlies much of the book of Ecclesiastes. When the preacher proclaims that it is good for man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work, then that is true the world over. God wants all people to work and to eat and drink, to do that together, even to help others eat and drink. It improves life. It even improves the lives of pagans. But these things are also true in a deeper sense for those who receive God's gifts as His redeemed children in Christ. Or when the preacher says that two are better than one and a cord of three strands is not easily broken, that's true the world over for all people. 
It is a proverb that fits because it fits with the way God made the world. And His will, expressed in His law, is like that. God commands us not to murder because murder destroys society. It even destroys the soul of the murderer. All sin, in fact, destroys our souls unless we repent. Murder takes away someone made in God's image, whether pre-born or already near death. Murder is murder. God's law reveals His good nature. Psalm 36, verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life, so it's the source, in your light we see light. That means we discover truth in light of the truth that is, which is God's truth, God's light. That's the only truth there is. Now, as fallen creatures, God's law creates a problem for us. It shows that we are sinful. But before we think it is all and only negative, we must first appreciate that it also reveals God's good nature and will. For example, God is the God of life. He has life from Himself, in Himself, from no other source. Completely underived. John 5, verse 26 It should not surprise us then that His law is designed to uphold human and creational life and make it flourish. Following God's law will bring us peace, security, and freedom to live within the bounds of our creation. If you live with others who want to keep His law, well, then you can trust them. You you know what their desires are, what boundaries they are keeping for themselves. You know that they will strive to uphold life. So you trust them. God is also the God of faithfulness, of love, and of justice. And His law calls us to faithfulness, to love, and to justice. So there's a correspondence between who God is and what He commands. So ultimately, all reality is finally rooted in the God who is. So God revealed His will for us, and this will of His was not arbitrarily chosen, but reflected His own character. This truly is a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters. It means that we are given a pattern. It means that we, though finite creatures, can aim to imitate God Himself. Calvin drew the illustration, not really original to him, but that if a person looks at black things all the time, or let's say lives in a dark jail cell for a long time, then a paper that has yellowed and been dirtied with years of dust will appear to them to be pure white. And just so in our fallen condition, we would lower our standards all the time until we call good what is totally evil. Our standard must remain God's good nature and His perfect law. So Isaiah was warned by the Lord in what we read. Do not call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to dread. And again, the prophet warned the people who were consulting mediums and spiritists that they should only consult the Lord and His will. He said, 
to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. They have no light and they have no truth. And if they wouldn't act according to the good law of God, what would happen? The next verses show that they will not flourish at all. Isaiah 8, verse 21 and 22. Here's what will happen. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they, And then what will happen if you curse your king and your God? Then they'll look toward the earth and they'll see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Well, let's examine this more fully in the second place. Fallen sinners should know God's law because it reveals our evil nature and will. We confess that we know our sins and misery from the law of God. So then we look at what the law requires, and it requires a perfect love. Then we look at ourselves and we find there is no perfect love. There's this inclination to hate God and to hate our neighbor. So the law shows us what God wants and then shows us that we are not conforming. So it's described in Scripture as a mirror. It mirrors, as it were, it reflects God's perfect nature and will to us. And then it mirrors back our sinful will and nature to God. And the one, image is, the one image exposes the other for what it really is. Now, when we confess that we're inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor, we are indicting ourselves in the strongest terms. So we're like a ball that's on a hill, and gravity pulls it down the incline, so it is inclined to roll down. Unless something else intervenes to stop it, that's the way it'll go. If you put a pencil on the table and then you lift up the end of the table, then the table is inclined and the pencil will roll away because the table's not horizontal. Well, in the same way, since our nature is no longer pure, we incline towards sin and God's law reveals that that's what's happening. Now, it's not just that we tend to go in a bad direction and, and we have no, no part in this ourselves. Somebody else tilted the table and we're just rolling. It's also that we want to go that way. We have that desire and we will go that way unless God intervenes. We do only evil unless God shows us that we are fallen sinners and then begins to work upon us. Almost 500 years ago, Erasmus was arguing with the great reformer Martin Luther. And Erasmus said that it is silly to say that God would command us to do what we cannot do. It is silly, said Erasmus, that a man whose right hand is tied behind his back should be told to stretch out his hand to the right when he can only stretch out his left hand to the left. God would not command such a silly thing. But, replied Luther, what about a man who actually has both arms tied 
behind his back. But who proudly maintains or ignorantly assumes that he can stretch either arm forth at will whenever he wants. Should he be commanded to stretch out his hand in one direction or the other, not to make fun of him with his arms tied, but precisely to show him that he is wrong about assuming his own ability and to make him realize his own captivity and misery. So, follow this carefully. Erasmus imagines a man who can either do what is commanded or at least knows that he cannot. Luther says that such a man is nowhere to be found. Scripture sets before us a man who is not only bound, wretched, captive, sick, and dead, but who through the operation of Satan his Lord adds to his other miseries that of blindness. The spiritually blind man thinks that he is free, that he is happy, able to do whatever he wishes, whether good or evil, but then he is blind to the reality as God tells us it is. That blind man by nature hates God and his neighbor. The problem is that so long as he does not have God's law, he doesn't know it. And he's very successful at suppressing that of the law which he has in his heart. So he thinks he is just fine until he is confronted with the holiness of God in the face of which his own sin is exposed. So, God's will reveals our evil nature and will. Satan knows that if people knew their how great their misery actually is, he could not keep any man in his kingdom. And that is why the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of Christ in the face of God. Or the glory of God in the face of Christ, sorry. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. They cannot even see the reality about themselves and their sin, and so they never flee to Christ. We in our sinful natures do not even want to flee to Christ until God humbles us with His mighty law. Now, Paul in Galatians 3 reminds the church that anyone who thinks that they're not really fallen creatures and wants to treat God's law as Adam and Eve could in paradise, obeying it perfectly, They are under a great illusion today. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, he proclaims. If you think you will please God by keeping His law, then you had better do it perfectly. Because God is perfect. Those who fail must remember, cursed be everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And again, Galatians 3, verse 12. Two verses later, only the man who does these things will live by them. But none of us do these things. Therefore, thus, ergo, none of us will live by them. We're going to die before God. We cannot just stretch out our arms. So all of these commands are for our flourishing and obeying them even just in an outward way apart from Christ. 
can still help society be orderly, but none of these commands can be obeyed in such a way as to be justified before God. God's tribunal keeps the same standard always, perfect love. No one but Christ has ever practiced perfect love. And none of us will have Christ for perfect love unless we hold on to Him in faith. The service of love, our actions, cannot happen unless the humility of faith precedes it and underlies that service. Paul clearly teaches in Galatians 3, verse 21 that the Mosaic Law cannot impart life because we are all prisoners of sin. We cannot inherit God's promises by keeping the law. The very thought is worthy of a curse. We inherit God's promises by casting ourselves at His feet of mercy in faith. There are two categories of people who equally need to understand this. The first are the prostitutes and pimps, drunks and criminals. And they hear about this law of God and that you can't win God's favor by doing good. And they say, yes, I understand. That's exactly where I am. That's me. I know I can't do it. The second that need to hear it are the churchgoers, the tithers, the do-gooders, who say, when they hear about this, that's not me. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Like the older brother in the parable of the two brothers. I've always served you, Lord. The law won't let you say that. The standard is perfect love which is impossible without true faith. Love without faith is works without faith and it's impossible to please God without faith. You need to hear the law as much as pimps and prostitutes to slay your sinful pride about your own righteousness. On the predestinarian principle, you are not better. I am not better. The law should help us see ourselves rightly and reach out to those in need of the Gospel. We can't stand above them, but with them. And so you must fight your tendency to elevate yourself and thereby to hate your neighbor. Fight it with humility and in faith. So, there's a place in society to outlaw prostitution and to force them off the streets, let us say, and to go after those who would take a prostitute. But when you personally drive by, you sin if you roll down your window and just yell something out the window. But if you have a way and take an opportunity to speak in love, and you are standing with and acknowledging the predestinarian principle that by grace alone have you been saved. The work of God in the law is to lay open to us our sinful nature so that we may hate it and flee to Christ. 
The law breaks us down, and so it should. It confounds us so as to prepare us for God's grace in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The law tells us, and it keeps telling all of us, with our hands securely tied behind our backs, stretch out your hands and pray. Stretch out your hands and love the poor. And we shout back, I cannot, I can't, I cannot. Leave me alone with these laws. But again, God Himself says, stretch forth your hand. And by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, at some point we say, I cannot, Lord, help me. And just there comes the comforting grace of God in Jesus Christ showing us the One who came to help us in what we cannot do. Although the reflection of ourselves in God's holy law shows our sin, yet it drives us to Christ our only Savior and it shows us that He meets all the requirements of being perfectly righteous and holy. And He in His love comforts us with the taking of our sins and the perfection of His life. So our confession of sin brings with it a longing for salvation. We find nothing to claim from ourselves. Can't even stretch forth a hand. And this poverty opens the way to Jesus Christ. So why should fallen sinners know God's law? Because it reveals God's perfect nature and will. It reveals our evil nature and will. And thereby, it drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.